0: You know, when we talk about climate, we talk about the interwoven structures that uphold it being like racism and, and capitalism and colonialism, all these things that clearly birth the crisis. But what is the upholstery? What is, what is buttressing the crisis right now? Knowing that California is burning, that some places are going underwater, that hurricanes are wiping out entire communities, how Do we still not recognize that this is a crisis?
1: Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crisis. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves, and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. The youth climate and environmental justice movement has entirely reshaped the landscape of climate policy and change-making. Young leaders from around the world have been central in not just leading mass mobilizations to demand action on climate and racial justice, but also in redirecting the public narratives and perceptions of the climate crisis and our roles in solving them. Gabriela Rodriguez and John Paul Mejia are the co-hosts of House on Fire, a youth-led podcast powered by the Clio Institute. They are both Latinx activists, educators, and leaders for change in their community who are leading the efforts to bring climate education to schools in Miami-Dade and are pushing elected officials and those empowered to take serious, intersectional, and urgent action on climate justice issues. We talked about all things climate activism, radical imagination for a better future, and our shared Colombian heritage. Hello. Hi. Hi, John paul and Gabriella or Gabby? Gabby works. Okay, perfect. Um, How are you both doing today? Good, good. How are you doing?
0: Pretty good. Thank you.
1: Um, I'm doing great. I'm so, so excited to have you both on the podcast. So thank you so much for making it work and making the time.
0: Of course. I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, same here. Uh, um, Do you guys want to tell me where you're calling in from?
2: Yeah, so I'm calling in from Miami, Florida,
0: and I am actually calling in right now from New York City, but I live in Miami.
1: Awesome, um, pretty pretty crazy weather in New York. I've seen um, a few a few videos. Unfortunately, those are becoming more common. I feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, more, I think more so crazy weather in Miami.
1: That's true as well. <laughs> Um and we we also I've I've been seeing footage from um Colombia that's where I'm from uh family and friends in the Caribbean with um this latest hurricane as well which is
2: really scary. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Gabby and I also have family from Colombia. And it's crazy. Oh awesome.
2: Whereabouts? My family is from Bogota and Medellin. I have a hard time saying that city. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And my mom is from Cali and my dad is from the coast. He's from Barranquilla.
1: That's so exciting. Yeah. I was born and raised in Cali. Um and that's where most of, of my family still is as well.
0: Ooh. Okay. So we're all we're all binded by that Colombian blood.
1: <laughs> yes. All Colombian, yeah. Uh this is really exciting, guys. Uh it's the first time we actually have other hosts of podcasts on this podcast. So I think it's brilliant. Woohoo.
0: Oh, happy to be here.
1: Um, do we want to start maybe by doing a little bit of intros and backgrounds? Gabby, maybe you want to start us off, um, telling us about yourself and how you got to work on what what you're working on right now.
2: Sure, thank you. So, thanks again for having us on. Uh, my name is Gabby Rodriguez. I like to consider myself a student, an educator, and an activist. Currently, I study environmental science and sustainability at Florida International University in Miami. And I'll be graduating next spring, so I'm very excited for that. Um, and I plan to pursue a graduate degree in climate science and solutions moving forward. Um, I also i also like to consider myself an educator. I'm a program coordinator at the Clio Institute, where I help educate young people about climate change and activate them to take action. And I also co-host our show, House on Fire, with JP, uh, which is a podcast powered by Cleo. And um, yeah, lastly, I, I'm an activist as well, and that's kind of weaved throughout all of my work every day. Um, I, I participate with local climate active advocacy groups here in Miami.
1: Awesome. Um, JP, you want to tell us about yourself?
0: Sure. I mean, much like what Gabby said, it's hard to identify our work in, in any labels, but more than anything, I would also consider myself um, an organizer, um, educator, and different things that fit in, in the midst of that um, as it relates to the climate crisis. So I have worked with the Clio Institute for a while now. And my role with Clio now is um, hosting this amazing House on Fire podcast with Gabby. <laughs> um, but besides that, uh, locally, I serve I serve as the founding hub coordinator of Sunrise Movement Miami, um, where we participate in grassroots organizing for the frontline community that is Miami. And nationally, I, I recently joined a team of organizers um, leading sort of discussions on the Green New Deal and and the future of it, um, as well as I, I do spokes for the Green New Deal as well.
1: Amazing. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, if you have it, um, where was the moment or, or the thing that made each of you really realize that the climate crisis was where you wanted to make your priority and focus in um, your work?
2: I can go ahead and start. So for me, I grew up always knowing that I wanted to be in and work with the environment. I was kind of always naturally attracted to being outdoors. And so I decided to pursue an environmental degree in college and um, you know, I was just exploring different paths, whether it was like law or policy or research, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my degree. And then I was sitting in a class one time in, in one, at, at my university in a college classroom. And it was at the end of the day, it was at the end of the period. We just had like five minutes left. The room was really dark, seats were cold, um, but we had to wrap up this lecture. And my college professor decided to spend the last like four or five minutes to introduce uh, sea level rise in Miami, Florida. And Mm. so he did this by projecting uh, sea level level rise slides, like a map of Miami-Dade County. And then with every slide, you could see how with uh, two feet, four feet, six feet, more and more sea level rise would start to cover the land. So with every slide that he changed, I would see more and more blue essentially covering my county, my home where I lived. And, you know, I had definitely understood the climate crisis before and I understood its implications, but seeing it projected like that to me really filled me with Anxiety, like it almost felt like I was drowning in that water that I was seeing rising. My chest got tight, and and my lungs felt really um, like they were filled. Right, and I just had instant climate anxiety in in my college classroom. And you know, that day I was driving home after that class, and I just kind of sat with that feeling and thought, I need to channel this into something. And so, moving on from that day, I decided to start getting involved with local climate advocacy and education, and. I I see that as like my aha moment that really catalyzed me into this work.
0: Right. Yeah. I also had sort of like a shocking epiphany in that way. Um, I really started off with my work on climate, I guess. I mean, my interest really started when I was a kid. I was a big um science geek and I loved nature and I was always with my grandparents in Columbia exploring nature, but it really got to another level when I was in high school. So in my sophomore year, Hurricane Irma brewing in the Atlantic intensified to this catastrophic category five hurricane overnight. And I didn't know how to take that news. Um my home was right in its path. And so my mom and I uh, went into our pantry and our closets and packed bags full of stuff and scurried off to a more affluent friend's place for protection, uh, not knowing when or if we'd come back. And thankfully, the storm changed its trajectory, but nonetheless, the damage was felt. And when I started going back home, I realized that it was the communities who were already disadvantaged and under-resourced and already fell to the existing oppression of racism and classism that were the most affected by the crisis that they had nothing to do with. And that's when climate justice started making sense to me. And I understood that climate change wasn't just this environmental issue, but this sort of culmination of all the issues that we've had as a society for centuries. And that really woke me up. And I realized that organizing for climate justice isn't organizing for a single issue organizing for climate justice is organizing for racial justice for economic justice for indigenous rights and that seemed like something purposeful for me to do so i began organizing with a school walkout then started reaching out to a bunch of groups found cleo found sunrise and that's how i am here today
1: that's amazing uh and thank you both for sharing kind of those personal stories i feel similarly it's it's so crucial that, that this is not kind of a science issue, right? This isn't an environmental issue. It's, it's quite literally affecting and impacting everything else that we already care about. Um, and i was like i said just yesterday watching the the footage of the hurricanes devastating san andres and providencia which are two colombian islands and with my mom on the phone and her just crying right this is a place where we grew up going and visiting all the time and that reality that these are folks who are like not responsible at all for the emissions and the and the causes of the problems and are finding themselves on the front lines of its impacts um it's, it's so hard and horrifying. And that brings me to something I wanted to touch with both of you on, and it's this year. Um, and everything that has happened this year from the pandemic disproportionately affecting uh, Black and Latinx and Native Americans, as well as uh, kind of a a racial uprising and renewed calls for racial justice across the country and the world. And then also an economic recession that has also disproportionately impacted um, those who live with overlapping um, vulnerabilities already. So I'd love to hear from both of you, how has this year and everything we have seen happen this year changed the way you either think about your work or you approach doing that work?
2: I love this question so much. Thank you for asking it, because this is definitely the year that I've had the most change in my work, and not really mm-hmm. just my work, but my purpose. Um, like I said earlier, I am applying to grad programs to continue working on climate, um, on climate solutions, and mobilizing people to take action on climate change. But you know, I, I you got to be a little bit more specific than that when you're picking your program and what you want to do, and. This year, with what you said, the multitude of crises we've experienced, the economic recession, recession, COVID-19, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the face of um, racism and police brutality, all these things combined, as devastating as they are, um, they showed me on a personal level what I want to commit myself to, which is mm-hmm. in my work, in my climate work, I want to specifically focus now on protecting and uplifting BIPOC communities, uh, Black, Brown, and Indigenous groups. Because, you know, if we're going to really tackle this issue with the limited time we have, we have to pull it from the roots. We have to pull it from where the expo- exploitation of people and the land have been. And I truly find um, a lot of solutions in nature based solutions that are led by these groups, these BIPOC groups that are clearly disproportionately affected by everything, not just the climate crisis. Um, and so I think to answer your question, that's what this year has put in perspective for me that I, I want to do my work solely for the protection of people and making sure we don't make the same mistakes we've made again, because this crisis exists, this pandemic exists, the economic recession exists, um, racism exists because of these theories of capitalism and colonialism from the beginning that, that need, to, need to end. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, very similar to that. I guess it's worth noting that 2020 has been one hell of a year. But Mm. the problem with that kind of thinking is that we recognize everything that's happened in 2020, all of these spiraling crises as this anomaly or rupture or unexpected thing that just happened and caught us off guard when it really is just a rupture of everything that we've been doing wrong for years. And if we identify every spiraling crisis of the moment as this sort of out of the blue thing that we can't rationalize its origins from, we're doomed. And that's exactly why we need to learn from everything that's happened this year in order to build a new world, essentially, to build back better. And much like how Gabby said, Long standing theories of capitalism and white supremacy and colonialism really came up front this year when we were dealing with this pandemic. And we have really witnessed how this collective existential crisis cannot be dealt with. By telling people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, by right. shrouding them with rugged individualism and leaving them to despair and fend for themselves against this crisis. No, we did something very different. Countries and places who handled this crisis best put it at the top of their priority and they nationalized I mean, they mobilized every national sector to deal with this crisis at the urgency that it demanded. And that saved lives. Now, when we talk about the climate crisis, does this ring true as well? Absolutely. And perhaps even to a higher priority. Why? Not because I have bias saying that the climate crisis is more important than the coronavirus crisis, but because we can expect several of the same effects that we have been dealing with with this pandemic that we can deal with with the climate crisis as well so it's worth ditching out our theories that have rationalized treating some people as disposable versus others not and rigged individualism for those who are dying and instead opt for solutions that are collective and that will drive forth the betterment of humanity and our survival on this planet
1: yeah 100%. I think I, I could have never said that better JP so thank you so much for for what you just articulated articulated so well. Um and I love also that you pointed out the kind of the irony in us collectively looking at 2020 and saying it is exactly an anomaly, right? Like this unprecedented hurricane season and the unprecedented wildfires and this virus that came out of nowhere. Like that that's not the reality, right? And folks who understand systems thinking and understand everything that's going on leading up to this point understand that this isn't just a one-off year in which awful things happened, but in fact, a a continuation of ongoing crises um, that are plaguing us. And so with that, I'd love to hear What are some of the obstacles that you still see, whether that be within your communities or in the work at large that are preventing us even from a a higher understanding of where we're at and what we need to do um, to keep this planet livable and, and ensure equity in the process?
2: It's pretty ironic that you just asked me that question, because I had to answer a very similar question for an assignment the other day. And um, I was asked, what are the two obstacles that you find are most in the face of the climate crisis, right? And I think Mm -hmm. there's so many. Um, It's such a complex issue. But I'll say what is in my head as the two biggest things that need to be worked on and need to be, you know, gotten rid of as soon as possible. And The first one is definitely the hands of the fossil fuel industry in our policies and in the way that our systems work. We need to completely dismantle the fossil fuel industry and everything about it that is wrong and doesn't care about the people and the living things on this planet. And um, that might mean voting in people who are not tied to the fossil fuel industry and are not tied to corporate lobbyists, right? Um, That means being civically engaged and demanding climate action from your local and national uh, governments and then the mm-hmm. other obstacle I see that is definitely more on an individual basis but at the same time is going to need probably systemic and and more broad efforts is um, I really find the misinformation and greenwashing campaigns that have existed in the past few decades to be absolutely detrimental to the work that we do today and I think we're going to deal with the effects of that for a long time and what I'm referring to is you know the the misinformation that has been spewed by fossil fuel industries for decades to protect their profits, the greenwashing campaigns we see every day now from large corporations and billionaires who you know who who promise they can help save us save the planet and its people, right? Um, I really think that is an obstacle because I really think that leads the greater public to um, feel safe in their hands and feel yeah. and, and really employ magic like what I like to call quote unquote magical thinking, where like future technologies and billionaires will save us from this crisis. And no, they won't. It's going to be people power. And so what I'm trying to get at is that I think in addition to the dismantling of the fossil fuel industry um, and you know, m- giving the energy grid back to the people is, in addition to that, another obstacle is just the dismantling of the misinformation and the learning that has gone into the general public, um, that the climate crisis, whether it's not real or it's not important or someone else will save it, that really, um, that complacency needs to end. And I think that's obviously, that is a huge part of the work that JP and I do and the efforts that we, that we carry through our local community.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, when we talk about climate, we talk about the interwoven like structures that uphold it being like, racism and and capitalism and colonialism all these things that clearly birth the crisis but what is the upholstery what is what is buttressing the crisis right now knowing that california is burning that some places are going underwater that hurricanes are wiping out entire communities how do we still not recognize that this is a crisis i Mm. think that those two things one of the two two threats, for example. Number one, neoliberalism, which has really dominated the globe since since you know at least the, the 80s. You know, we've been sort of operating off this for decades now. And, you know, in this book, Naomi Klein more specifically calls it market fundamentalism. And it's this belief that the market will solve everything. And it is worthwhile for common people to sacrifice their own material needs for the betterment of a market that won't even work for them. And when we talk about that market, we're not talking about some random esoteric thing. We're talking about this apparatus that is in the hands and serves as a tool For a small group of people, many of which are in the fossil fuel industry, that are ready to put their own livelihoods, profits, and luxuries above the mere existence of life on Earth. And they use that tool in many different ways to distract the public from its own benefits. One way, like Gabby said, is misinformation and greenwashing. Another way is paying off politicians on both sides of the aisle to opt out for anything that will serve their constituents right? We know about the good old climate deniers in Congress. I mean, I don't I don't need to speak about them, but we also don't criticize enough the politicians who might believe in climate change but don't do anything, really. And on that other note, the second thing that is really holding up this crisis is incrementalism. This sort of mm delusional belief that this crisis that presents itself with such a short time scale and such high urgency can be dealt with one chip at a time incrementalism is merely another form of denialism and it's time that it stops being tolerated
1: absolutely um I think you've you've just kind of hit on another aspect that I definitely wanted to get in with both of you about and it's the role of elected official right and, and public policy and how changing structures of power and changing public discourse is giving us back some of the power to be able to inform um, power and decision making. Um, And what I'm talking about specifically is the massive role of young activists like yourselves and Sunrise and, and the other brilliant folks working in this space that really pushed the conversation forward in this past presidential election. So we saw climate front and center in a way that we had never seen before. I think by the end of the Democratic primary, there wasn't a single candidate who wasn't talking about environmental justice within their climate plans, right? And that's really reflective of activists and movement builders who made that happen. And at the same time, uh, we found ourselves on the other side of an election that really left a lot to be desired. And I'd love to hear from both of you, as residents of Miami and Latinos, which are kind of two things that were really huge in this election, to tell me how you're thinking about the role of electoral politics, obviously understanding that that's not the end-all be-all of climate and and change-making, But how does that factor into how you think about change and and the immediate things that we need to get done while at the same time dealing with antiquated systems that keep power in the hands of of the few and not representative of the priorities of the people?
2: I think that um, reflecting on, for example, I'll take Biden's uh, win. When looking at elected officials and electoral politics in general, I think that it's a vehicle for what we want to happen, but I really don't think that it is. It, like you said, it's not a fix all of solution. It's not a promise. It's something where this will only work if we stay engaged as young people. Mm-hmm. And for me, as somebody that lives in Miami, is a young person, is a Latina person, is faced by the climate crisis, cares about immigration, cares about human rights, all of these things. Um, this electoral, this past election. You know, I voted for my values. I voted for at least some sliver, uh, some piece of human de- decency and to somehow preserve our supposed democracy, right? And so the sad part is that I think when it comes to politics in general and voting for elected officials, you, you really have to campaign for and support the people who you know that you'll be able to work with. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's important to remember that as people in the United States, Those elected officials work for us and they represent Mm -hmm. us and our needs. And voting is not the end of doing the work as people. We have to go beyond that. We have to stay. We have to hold these people accountable. These people that are in office should be working with us and reaching out to us regularly to address our needs. Um, And so that's where my, my headspace is right now about this. Um, and I just think that really the, the key message in what we've seen in the past, uh, two weeks or so is that it doesn't end here. The election, um, taking this election as an example was not the finish line at all. It was actually the starting point point. and the next four years, um, or however long we work with this administration is really going to be the time that we have to tackle the climate crisis and all of the issues we care about as, as human beings on this planet.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's brilliant that you brought up the example of of Biden and, and Sunrise as well, because that's sort of this example of how these like dual forms of power can work. We organize our communities and organize the electoral scene, right? So, I mean, you know, I work with Sunrise Movement as well. And I know that we did not give Biden an easy time at all during the primaries. We embarrassed his climate plan, giving it an F minus. We counter protested against him many, many times, but he was what we were left with. So we didn't sort of accept this range of defeat after the primaries, after not having our endorsed candidate go through. We You know, we didn't give up. And he said, okay, well, it's still our duty as a movement to galvanize climate action. So, what we did was ramp up the pressure way more. And we created this rift in which young people and progressives and predominantly people of color were asking for bold solutions that weren't being met. And we sort of drove in this point that votes aren't just given, they're earned. And for that reason, um, that campaign, the Biden campaign, then invited um, some leadership from the Sunrise Movement, its executive director, Varshney, to come on to a Senator uh, Bernie Sanders uh, and Biden unity task force to rewrite this climate plan, to make it fit closely to the bold vision of an actual Green New Deal. And that pressure that was amounted in order for that to do that for, for him to do that is what created Biden's climate plan now and what catapulted him to win in the first place. Because, fun fact, after our convention and rewriting of the plan, Biden's climate plan was actually more popular amongst people than Biden himself so right. it's really interesting to see how wielding people power in those ways can create massive change. Now, great, Biden's elected. Are we going to go back to brunch? Hell no. He's put he's <laughs> some people who have worked in the fossil fuel industry before on his transition team. Do we take that lightly? No, not at all. We're mad as hell about it. And we've picked our cabinet recommendations and we're going to hold him through on that. And that's really drives home, that really drives home the point that work never stops, especially Mm. under electoral politics. But we can't blind ourselves with the illusion that one politician or a group of people uh, who represent us are going to save us. No, like Gabby said, they are our employees and we have the power to mobilize entire communities to build up enough pressure to change the decisions that these folks make by making our demands not capable of ignoring and to your point about latino communities and and the one that we live in for example it's so important to not treat these communities like a monolith Um, and one of the things that we see is that political opinions in the latinx community are incredibly diverse Um, So, for example, during the primary season, we had folks um, in Nevada and other states from Central American countries gravitating towards Bernie Sanders versus some of Miami's Cuban and Venezuelan populations who um, were centered more around GOP. And being able to connect these folks on what their wishes are is actually much more informative than you might think because lots of the things that these folks have in common is a deep disdain for elitism and neoliberalism. Mm, totally. And some people who I mean, you know, like Joe Biden didn't come out in shining colors with the with the Latino vote, Bernie and Bernie and Trump did. So it's like why? Well, for a lot of people they feel angered by the political system under we live under which we live. And An escape from that is seen through a candidate that's against the establishment. Now, what kind of candidate will that be? That's where the opinion diverges. But the important part is connecting with our communities to make sure that rhetoric of violence and hatred isn't capitalized upon by fear and that we can create coalitions with our Latinx, Black, Indigenous brothers and sisters and siblings to truly flip the page on the type of world um, that we want to build, a multiracial democracy that will end the climate crisis.
2: I just want to add that I really agree with everything that JP just said. And um, going back to a few minutes ago when we talked about going beyond the ballot and going beyond your vote, there's this... um, quote that I heard from a Sunrise Movement video recently that I wrote down on my phone because I just thought it was so impactful and something that I want everybody to to really remember moving forward, not just for the end of 2020, not just for the beginning of 2021 when Biden kicks in, but literally for, for the rest of however long our democracy is around because it's, it's, so, it's so crucial that we stay engaged. And the, the line goes, your vote was an invitation to power. And now it's time for you to throw your power around. So I just thought that that's Mm. so, everything's so true. And I think now is the time, like I said, this is a starting line. This is when people need to be most engaged as possible and stay so moving forward to the best of their capabilities.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, and I'm I'm so excited right now because like you both have said, the work only continues, right? And the possibilities of that work are only broadening with a change in administration, but that doesn't mean by any means that priorities have changed. I actually was reading um, p- last week this analysis on how Donald Trump may have actually catalyzed people to care about the climate crisis in like, uh, just insurmountable numbers because they saw this threat so near. And there is perhaps this fear that now with a change in administration, a lot of folks are going to go back to feeling okay or safe or complacent uh, because the quote unquote threat is out of the White House. When in reality, that's just not at all um, how how any of this works. And I'd love now to hear from you, what are some of the Opportunities, or the parts of this work, or specific climate solutions that you are most excited about right now.
2: Hmm. Um. That's such a broad question. I I'm so excited about everything, just because uh, you know, like we've been saying <laughs> a million times. That, you know, Biden Biden's uh, administration is not a fix-all solution, and it's really going to take all of us working together to ensure that we get some type of you know national cohesive bold climate action and policy in but for me as i stated earlier the most important thing um and something that excites me the most is seeing uh communities of color and the under-resourced communities communities that have been um often ignored and excluded actually receive the the protection and resources and uplifting and the leadership that they need and um we see that that is definitely an opportunity with Biden's um, upcoming plan centering environmental justice and not even just Biden but more and more local elected officials around the the country and locally as well focusing on this for um, we haven't mentioned this yet but our our new uh, mayor is going to be Danielle Levine Cava and she's the first woman mayor of Miami-Dade County and she cares about the environment and she understands the climate crisis and as a young person living in Miami, seeing her elected Again, we don't want to worship or idolize any political candidates, but seeing her elected gave me so much hope for my county um, and and action on a local level and the opportunities that come with protecting our black and brown communities that are suffering from climate gentrification mm-hmm. and all the future issues that can arise with that. So that's what I would say. There's definitely a lot of opportunity and I'm excited to see it the most in um, those who need it the most.
0: Yes, that answer got me riled up because I am, like, you know, I sometimes I'm a bit of like a policy geek and it's like super interesting to see how sort of stuff has shifted over the past couple months. And yeah, I mean, when we talk about Biden right now, what we're seeing or at least what we have seen is, you know, bolder bolder, um, promises and, and, and bolder policies, right? 1.7, nearly $2 trillion of investment. Um, almost 40% of those investments in, in climate action, uh, 40% of them going to the most vulnerable communities that have, have been, uh, historically left behind, um, Uh, pushing the uh electrified renewable sector like 15 years more ambitious to 2035 net zero i mean there's so much that that we can really hope for but there's there's so much more to push for i mean there's Mm -hmm. like we can't we can't look at these things and be like ah great the problem's fixed no it's an entire system that has to change so i'm really excited to see things like um the return of land to indigenous people and indigenous sovereignty over stolen land. I'm excited to see, um, community ownership over energy and the goods and products, um, that are produced from, from a, a clean energy revolution, essentially. I'm excited to see, um, how we can center uh, communities left behind historically in the decision-making process of creating um, a new world. I'm excited to see us alleviate ourselves from such an economic downfall where people are struggling to get by every day by the creation of millions of jobs that are more dignified, unified, better paying, and will help us restore and better and stabilize our climate. There's so much that we can imagine and that we can do that isn't on the table yet that we have to keep pushing for because it's not Mm -hmm. merely only like us imagining this utopia when we imagine these things we're talking about what we need we have operated in the realm of cynicism for so long thinking okay maybe it can only get this good before it goes to crap again no now is a time where we have been through the worst over these past five months. And we know that entire worlds and I mean entire countries have been able to mobilize to crazy extents in the past due to wars and other existential crises. This is our moment to truly flip the page of what it means to be civilized and create a future in which your very existence isn't politicized. I think that's what I'm really excited for.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I just wanna add that onto your your spiel of things that you're excited to see. <laughs> I am so excited to see people that are just engaging with the movement. And when I say the movement, I don't mean specifically the climate movement, but just like the movement of people and rights and and systems that are not oppressive. That is what excites me so much, especially right now in this moment as we speak. And um earlier this year, well, you know, when the COVID-19 pandemic started, somebody asked had asked me do you feel like the COVID-19 pandemic has stalled climate work or has deterred the climate movement? And I approach that from a more broader sense because yes, technically the pandemic has made mobilizing more difficult and you know we can't do regular events mm. education. But my answer was no. If anything, the pandemic, and I don't mean to demean um, the, the suffering that has come from the pandemic, but if anything, this has shown a lot of people what's so wrong about the oppressive systems that we live under that JP's talking about. And it has helped mobilizing helped mobilize so many people, young and old, black and white, very different people all around the world, to further understand what we've been doing wrong for centuries. And that's something that I'm incredibly excited about seeing not in the future, but right now. I think it's great. Mm-hmm.
1: No, absolutely. And I think it's been brilliant to produce this season of the podcast at this time because it really has weaved through exactly what you're saying, right? With fixers and climate uh, leaders. How has this year impacted you? And and frankly, across the board, everyone's answer is this is a massive opportunity, an opportunity for collective change and a really um, mobilizing of people who would otherwise not be entering this movement in such a way. Um, And JP, I want to highlight something that you said that I think about so often, and that is the role of imagination, right? You said we can imagine. Um, And I think that's a huge part of the work, really, um, because we get to to really use our creativity and our our communities to reimagine how these systems can be better to serve us. Um, and it's kind of ironic because you, if you really think about it, on the other end, um, there have been people who have imagined and created these systems of oppression who uphold white supremacy and late-term capitalism in the ways that we see them. And to see us now saying, no, we also have the potential to imagine and make true these things that that we envision and see. Um, and through this conversation, obviously the the weave that has web day is the role of young people and young activists in the election, but in general, in changing the public discourse and conversation. And I would love to hear from both of you personally, how this journey has manifested for, for you guys and in your lives, with your families, with your peers, in your schools, this role of engaging and taking on really the most critical and existential challenge of our times, which I know is not easy and doesn't always, isn't always met um, with the kindness and the kind of, yeah, importance that it deserves.
2: Um, I, you know, I think I'm pretty lucky because for me personally, I think I'm in a bubble of very supportive family and friends that, you know, they're they're supportive of the work I do. They get it. They understand the climate crisis. Um, But I would say that there are definitely people in my life that are more activated than others. And for me and what I've noticed with my work is that I've had the ability to activate people in my life, friends and family that did not understand or care about this issue beforehand. And that's probably um, the gist of it all. But something else I'd like to add is that I've noticed in doing this work that oftentimes... You become, as an activist, as an educator, as a student, you become perceived as kind of the climate person in the room, um, which I know Jason can relate with. And um, that this is this is a part of my answer that I'll say is a little bit discouraging. um, That's not as nice, because when that becomes sort of a label you your work feels quite demeaned and it feels like no you don't understand i'm not just the climate person in the room because this is all for fun like this is my hobby this is my passion right no this right. is because it's for the survival of this planet and my future and everything that i envision for myself in the future everything's at stake i have to do this you know there's no choice um and i think that that's something that most if not all people who work in this can understand that That label sometimes is quite annoying because I'd rather have people say like, oh, instead of being the climate person in the room, hey, you tell me more about what you do and like, how can I get involved or like, what are my abilities? Um, So that's kind of where my head went with that answer. But that's something I want to bring up as well, because oftentimes we get that and we get that um, feeling from other people. And I want people to understand that this isn't some type of label or passion or hobby. This is something that you should be included into as well, because this crisis will affect your life as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with Gabby like 100%. I think that that sort of like in ways it becomes like a personality trait in good and bad ways, but I'd say what sucks from it is like, you know, those distasteful conversations where like someone will come up to you and be like, oh, yeah, like you're into the whole environment thing. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, being, being, uh, yes. being interested in my own survival is super trendy. Yeah. I'm really, really fitting in with the season. Yes. And, um, you know, while seasons still exist. Um, but <laughs> I like, Another thing is, I mean, especially, and there's lots of different ways that activism forms, but like, there's a certain, and I know, like, I've spoken to this about, I mean, I've spoken about this with Gabby a lot, like, there's a certain sense of anxiety I feel with climate that is unparalleled to different issues. There isn't one day Mm. that I don't think about deadlines, there isn't one day that I don't think about sort of impending destruction and i will say the remedy to that is just the amazing people with whom i work and the fact that we all work from a place of optimism over fear that really keeps me going but there are several um you know discouraging parts of activism i guess in ways but like everything else and You know, one more thing is like, especially in in like leadership positions and tough leadership positions, it's hard because I mean, this is no, this isn't like a crisis that like we were prepped to deal with. Like no one wrote a book titled like, here's how to become a climate activist. Like you're talking about huge issues and huge, powerful structures that are up against you. And you're like an 18 year old kid and trying to fit into what everyone wants you to be. Is so hard as it is, add like another crazy identification of what you're trying to do on top of it. And it's even worse, but it, it makes your skin thicker, I think. And it's totally worth it because at the end of the day, under this godforsaken system under which we live under, the careers and workplaces that we often find ourselves in, we don't really find purpose in them. But the work that I do, I'm privileged enough to find purpose in. And I'm really grateful and fortunate for that. And I want to build a world in which everyone finds their work purposeful as well.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And everything, everything both of you are saying is so resonant. Um, and I've certainly sat in rooms in which people have said, oh, yeah, you're so passionate, right? You're, you're just working in what is your passion. And it always reminds me of something I read once uh, where it was like a cartoon that said telling someone they're passionate, quote unquote, about the climate crisis is like seeing somebody drowning and telling them you're so passionate about swimming. Um because it's, it's just unreal to think about people still thinking about this as an abstract and esoteric concept that is somewhere else, uh, when really this this quite literally is about survival and not for, of our children or grandchildren, but like us and, and the folks who are here right now in this moment. Um, so I think a lot of people um, are, are going to resonate with, with what you both have shared. And I do want to also touch on, um, JP, something you said about the, the difficulty and the immensity of this work um, being put on a few folks and, and how challenging and difficult that really can be. I know you mentioned one of the things that keeps you going is the people that you're fortunate enough to work with. Uh, but are there is there anything else that you both find um, grounds you at the end of very difficult days or weeks or moments of you know, self-doubt or doubt in this, in this movement or their possibilities that keeps you coming back to this work and doing so in a way that is also sustainable for yourselves?
2: I'd say, um, the main thing is like what we said earlier, the people and being surrounded by emotionally intelligent Mm -hmm. people. But I don't want to uh, add to that because we already spoke about it. I would say the other thing is the wins, you know, like, the, mm-hmm. the successes of the movement, those are the things that you're like, wow, OK, all the effort I'm putting in um, is amounting to something. And I think I really felt that I hadn't felt that for a long time, frankly, until the presidential election and after the work that we did for voter mobilization. For for a while this year, I, I truly hadn't felt a big win. But when I did in that moment and when I saw also that we elected a, a mayor that cares about the climate crisis I you know it kind of re-sparked that energy in me, and I was like, okay, yeah, the stuff I'm doing does work. Um, but there are also smaller wins too that that keep you going. I think throughout the week and and really just the days and the moments. And for me, those smaller wins are things like seeing one of my friends join a a, a meeting for a climate advocacy group I'm in, right? Or mm. seeing one of my parents find the connection between the weather they're seeing on the news and the climate crisis. Um, or seeing a you know somebody I know vote for the first time in a in a local election and actually understanding how local politics affects them. So I'd say that for me it's the small wins and it's the big wins and ultimately with those wins you will still feel tired and you you will still feel like this is unfair and you shouldn't even be doing this. It's not fair as a young person. And I think that's where the the um, attention to self care comes into play and just making sure that you are so okay with taking time off if you need to. Um, I think Mm -hmm. growing up in the United States and and really under any, you know, capitalistic system is that you feel like productivity is everything and productivity is what defines you and and you are nothing without being productive. And I think that is really toxic and really unhealthy. Um, And that's where the, that aspect of understanding that rest is important and joy is important. And I find those things to actually be more important really than productivity and rest and joy are not only important for your health, but they are forms of resistance as well to, to the world that we live under.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I really resonate with everything that Gabby said and I won't repeat any of it. I guess like the other point I'll add is that, you know, on the, people aspect like the people who you work with like I love partaking in just like reading movement history and like you know making key insights for how to organize and stuff like that and then bringing those thoughts to a like table of people and asking ourselves big questions like okay what's the future of the climate conversation going to be for the entire United States what Mm -hmm. is the future of the largest climate policy that we've ever put on the table going to be like, and actually executing those conversations and like seeing entire paradigms around a public discourse that has existed for decades now change within months is so crazy in the best ways possible. And to think that you are part of the movement that is doing that is just awe-inspiring. And Yeah, I mean, it's just the the realization of what it means to leverage power that is really um, grounding and really does keep you going because suddenly what's been in your head for a while now is being actualized and realized in front of you and you can keep going. And I find that incredibly grounding.
1: Right, definitely. Um, I know our time is running out, but maybe in the last five minutes that we have together, um, I would love to hear from, from both of you, if we are successful, if we succeed in reshaping and reimagining the world into what we know it should be, what, is that, what does that word look like um, for, for each of you?
2: For me, um, I could probably go on for hours describing that world, (laughs) but I'll try to keep it uh, a little bit uh, cohesive and tight. For me, that world looks like a world where we don't deal with these systems we've talked about for the past hour, where people... feel that they are not under a system that hates them or under a system that is systematically oppressing them where black, brown, and black, I'm sorry, black, brown, indigenous, um, all sorts of people, queer people, trans people, everybody can come out and uh, really rejoice in their community together and feel that their community is there for them. And also Mm. a world where not only people are protected, but our air, our water, our atmosphere, our species, um, our natural processes, our soil. I could go on. <laughs> All those things are protected as well. And not only protected, but built back better than they were before. Not only resilient, but uh, able to to grow better than they were before. Um, I, I envision a very regenerative world, a world where everything is, you know, everything is treated as it should be. And I think a lot of that goes back to um A world where what we might have seen a few centuries before, right? A world that me and JP and you probably don't even know, a world before colonization, a world where um, indigenous people tended to the land and and cared for it. And that's honestly the sort of world that it might not look exactly the same, of course, because we live in a different time now with different technologies and and sciences, but a world with the same values um, and, and with the same principles.
0: Yeah, there's so much to imagine. I mean I envision a world in which we stop being so scared of each other and our identities and our skin color and our labels of national identity I envision a world in which people are praised are people are placed over profit I envision a world where no one is disposable I envision a world in which we are able to tap into our full potential of humanity I believe in a world in which we don't feel like we're competing with one another I believe in a world in which we feel purposeful about our work. I believe in a world in which we have direct ownership over the things we love. I have envisioned a world in which we are able to rise above the hatred and fear of the past to pursue a collective future together. I, I see a world in which Solidarity is something that defines what it means to be human. I see a world in which we treat people and lands as the living organisms that they are and I believe in a world fueled by reciprocity for each other in which we don't have to deplore the lives of other people to benefit our own in which we are able to communicate, operate, work, live, exist with each other, rid of so much oppression and hate that clouds and specters over everything now. There's really a lot to imagine, and there's huge goals to strive for. Nonetheless, the question of human nature is obsolete. We know that we can get there, but it's going to take a lot of work.
1: Absolutely. Um, so so here's to that work and to that future and everyone working so, so hard um, to make it a reality. Gabby, JP, you both are such a gift uh, to this movement. And I'm so, so grateful to have spent this time with both of you today. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much for having us on. It was great. And I really
1: hope Absolutely, everyone goes and checks out your podcast. We'll be sure to link it everywhere um, because we we all need have a lot to learn from both of you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Have a good rest of your week. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Orlando. And it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time...